You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. This week's Law and Order Marathon winner is Lois Tuman of Elmwood Park, Illinois. Lois will receive a marathon decal showing she watched 26.2 hours of her favorite crime show. To be next week's winner, sign up at lawandorderpodcast.com. I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoie and John Davenport, and these are their stories. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it. Law and order, law and order, law and order. It's no ordinary police procedural, baby. It's the FNOG of police procedures, baby. Law and order, law and order, law and order, law and order. These are their stories, these are their stories. Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast about Network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspire their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode from either Criminal Intent, SVU, or Original Recipe. And today we're looking at Law & Order, Season 12, Episode 6, Formerly Famous. What's with all the press? Yeah, husband was some big-shot singer. Tommy Vega? You heard of him. He had a big Vegas act. He's going to be the next Tom Jones. Who's Tom Jones? Joining me to do just that is true crime author and the host of Crime Writers On and Slate's Mom and Dad Are Fighting Podcasts, Rebecca Lavoie. Hello, Rebecca. Hey, Kevin. I consider this podcast, this is my second chance. This, this is, is your it. second chance. Yeah, this well, is you it. are formerly famous in the <laughs> podcasting world. Uh, rounding out our panel is our special guest from The Hollywood Outsider, John Davenport. Hello, John. Hey, guys. And much like the people we watched in this episode, I don't know what to do with my hands. <laughs> as long as you're not talking with food in your mouth, you're better than the people in the cold open in this episode. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so John, you know, you have a lot of fun with that asshole from the Blacklist Exposed podcast <laughs> who beat us at that, uh, that awards event. But I think uh, I have to, we have to say thank you because you're the one who actually told him that this is a good podcast. I told them there was no chance of you guys, of them beating you guys. I, there was no way. <laughs> hey, I, That's in surprise. I, I like how comforted you are by that, but you know, Kevin, that we did in fact lose to I that know, Black but, podcast, right? But if we didn't tell anybody, they wouldn't It's know. almost like you think that if you just tell people that one person thought we shouldn't lose, that that's the same as actually winning. <laughs> <laughs> now, John, you know... Between TV appreciation podcasts and movie appreciation podcasts, what is really the secret of success? Is it a, a reverence for the show and the material, or is it an irreverence? I'm going to have to go with irreverence. It, it, it's one thing to appreciate what you're watching and try to try to show it to the world, but it's another thing when you take it way too seriously. If you just bring it down to a level that everybody gets to appreciate it, that, that, that works the best. Now, of all the franchises, which two cops are your favorite detective team? Favorite Law and Order detective team. I'm going to have to go with Gorn and Eames. And the reason why is because I find that if you take the story of criminal intent and turn it into a fever dream of some mental patient in a hospital someplace... <laughs> <laughs> the whole show changes into something completely different. And in, especially with the captains constantly changing, and then you had Deacons with the eye patch. It, that's really just <laughs> so perfect. Weird. That's that's like the best analysis of a favorite detective team we've ever gotten on this show. Can I just call it? 
A I'm cycle fever it. dream? Yeah. That was incredible. He's 100% right. It finally makes sense. It totally makes sense. <laughs> we know what Dick Wolf was doing that year when he came up with that idea. Yeah. I don't think of the other two major franchises, Mothership and SVU, that you could sort of just take a two-hour block of what that show is, and it would make a good movie. Because I think, But I think with Criminal Intent, you, you could, because the characters are really rich enough that that you could have a mystery, because mm-hmm. it's really about mystery as opposed to just, let's find out who the rapist is. Wait, wait, you think it would make a good movie? I Well, <laughs> in the right hands. Am, am I wrong, John? Am I, I wrong? I completely agree. It would make a good movie. They even went as far as trying to give Gorn a Moriart- Moriarty of his own, so it's... That's right. Yes. Yeah. What's her name? Fred Olivia Savage's Dab- sister from... Uh... Olivia Dab- uh, Dabo. <laughs> Dabo. <laughs> yeah, we did an episode with her and people yeah. loved it. Yeah. Did they? <laughs> oh, I, I loved her. I loved our episode. <laughs> I don't know. So many of them d- decided not to download it that uh, <laughs> we kind of missed it. Uh, John, who's your favorite prosecutorial team? Favorite law and order district attorney prosecutorial team. My favorite prosecutorial team has to be Barba. And the reason why is because I liked watching him kind of like pine after Olivia. It kind of like really resonated with me for some strange reason. But on top of that, like he's also very cool. So like, yeah, he he Mm -hmm. wants the girl, but he's very smooth, very cool. And then he is the first character who spoke Spanish within all of the Law and Order universe that I bought. So he'd be, you know, I can't do that for you, Barba. Wait, you didn't think Amaro speaking Spanish wasn't good enough? It did, you didn't buy it? No, I didn't buy it. <laughs> <laughs> they dubbed it in or yeah. hate her. Well, one of my favorite things about him is when he goes and talks to somebody. And, uh, Pero nosotros somos del mismo barrio. And it always works. <laughs> <laughs> you know, wait, the, the victim was just like, thank you. I was just waiting for someone to speak to me in Spanish in New York. All right, now let's take a look at the first half of this episode, Law & Order Season 12, Episode 6, Formerly Famous. Hey, it's Gary Busey stumbling into a crappy bar. Talk about playing against type. (laughs) He's actually playing has-been Vegas singer Tommy Vega, who says his wife's been shot just a couple of blocks away. Anybody see the shooting? Yeah, the neighborhood's pretty dead at night. So he leaves his wife on a dark city street, comes back to find her missing part of her skull. Yeah, along with her purse and wedding ring. Could be a robbery gone bad. Or a marriage. The mostly emotionless Vega tells the cops after dinner he left with his wife, Beth Ann, then turned around to cover a bet. When he returned, she'd been shot. Vega already has his entourage to comfort him. It includes his shifty manager and his two sons, who've already called a flashy lawyer. Defense attorney Brad Feldman seems to be one step ahead of Briscoe and Green. He finds the murder weapon in a drug den and beats them to picking up the victim's mail. The detectives find that Beth Ann was a celebrity chaser. Vega had been sending checks to her former boyfriend, who claims to have loaned Beth Ann lots of money. She got hate mail from at least one former baseball player she was shaking down. They're finally able to trace the gun back to a guy who says he gave the revolver to his boss, Tommy Vega's manager, Art Cahill. They bring him in for questioning. Okay, so we'll talk about... So many things. (laughs) We'll talk about our special guest star in just a minute, but... Well, I just... All I can think about when we first see Gary Busey in this episode is... You know, and all the context in which we've seen Gary Busey in the previous last last decade or so, uh-huh. my notes say, 
Oh my God, Gary Busey is almost coherent. <laughs> <laughs> and that is a compliment, but also very sad. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> now, Briscoe and Green want to check out Vegas Story, so they go and ask the Irish bartender who seems completely comfortable talking about the illegal bookmaking operation <laughs> he's got going on inside the pub. Put 600 straight on the nose. Horse was called Shooting Star, something like that. Which race? The fifth at Belmont. He came back about 20 minutes later, told me to spread it across the board. He just does not give a shit. Yeah, but he's Irish. Oh, yeah. There you <laughs> Is go. He? I couldn't tell if that was put on or not. What do you think? Did you look him up on IMDb? No, I didn't. But they, I mean, they. I, who had the better Irish accent, the pub owner or the bartender? <laughs> well, what do you want to go with by better? Do you want better as in like the most like muppeted one or do you want better <laughs> as in the most natural one? <laughs> I, I want the one that reminds me of my grandmother. Bartender. Bartender. I thought he was good. Yeah. But I don't I don't know your grandmother, but bartender. <laughs> she was a bartender, so I just like how this whole gambling, like weird, random red herring, didn't go anywhere storyline. It was really just an opportunity for us to give Green a chance to once again show off his gambling expertise slash addiction slash whatever the hell is going on. That's a sucker's play. What? Killing your wife? No. Spreading your bet. You place a bet straight on the nose, you go with your hunch. You don't go back to cover your losses. Like, that was a sucker's bet. It's like, okay. That was the whole reason. There was like no other reason for that entire plot point and that Irish guy to even exist. John, everything I learned about gambling, I learned by watching Green on Law and Order. <laughs> that sounds like an actual good way to figure it out. And Rollins on SVU, don't forget. Oh, oh yeah. right. Well, that's how to do it wrong. That's how not to do it. How not to do it. But, you know, I would really think that this Irish bartender should worry more about immigration, because you know he's also there illegal. <laughs> Probably. In Boston? I mean, in New York? Absolutely. So we know that attorney Brad Fellman is going to be a pain in the ass because his name is Brad Fellman. Um, and we first meet him at the crime scene the next day where there is this perfect chalk outline <laughs> of where the body has been. It even goes up an angle. Like there's like, like a step. And the, the outline head is kind like... of on the step. <laughs> like she gouged half of her head. It was like some college sophomore's like uh, dissertation art project to like, oh, we want you to do the, I mean, it was tape. It wasn't chalk, right? It's, it's tape. No, it was spray painted. <laughs> It seems like it really didn't take them a lot of time to make the victim in this case uh, sound like a pretty bad girl. What do you think, John? Yeah, that I kind of felt that was weird because maybe it's just our sensibilities these days, but like going right away and pointing out how she's jumps from celebrity to celebrity just to get the money. It's it was it was kind of disheartening to see that today. Maybe I don't know if I, how it felt back in two thousand one, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm just gonna point out she's not a real person and she is a slut. <laughs> I'm just going to say it. Jeez, okay. her but, too. I, I, her but too. I will say, the, the, I think, actually, this is why I feel bad about the character Beth Ann, because when she died, she died in like this unusual position where she had to have her knee out and really weird. It's just to make a better chalk outline. Mm, yeah. Because you never see the chalk right. outline and it looks like somebody, you know, doing a, a face plant. They always have to have like the knee out. It's very and graceful. All, yeah. It's very fossy. Yes. <laughs> it has to... <laughs> It has to look like the cover of a very special Christmas album. <laughs> okay, so they go to the mailbox store to get Beth Ann's mail, and there is like this really awesome scene with this stoner, which first off, the, the two great moments. First off... Yeah, she had a box here. Yeah. Can we get a look at it? A box? 
Or male smartass. Dirtiest joke I've ever seen on a Law & Order episode. Hands down. Yeah. He's like, do you want you want to see her box? <laughs> 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 yeah, we want to see her box. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> Are you not paying attention to the news? That's totally inappropriate. I Kevin. know, I know. My you're goodness. never going to make it on the Supreme Court now. Apparently not. <laughs> oh, really not. And then the second part is like you know they say uh, said he was a lawyer, showed me a bunch of papers. Did you read them or roll them? That wasn't as funny. As I thought it was did. pretty funny. I thought I thought he delivered that very well, John. I thought that was pretty well delivered as well. However, I, I would like to point out this is like one of the first times in a Law and Order where you didn't see somebody do a walk and talk. He wasn't so. I, I guess he was so stoned oh. that's why they they couldn't do a walk and talk with him. <laughs> there were actually not a lot of walk and talks. I mean, there was a lot of sitting behind the desk. There was I a mean, lot of like looking through checks, blah blah blah, accounting books, blah blah blah. Yeah, not really understanding why they kept throwing out numbers, blah blah blah. But yeah, the stoner guy wasn't too busy to talk to the cops like everyone else at work always is on these shows. Yeah. Even Van Buren had to like shuffle paper and move it around, and she couldn't stay in one spot no. the whole time. Remember, they walked her to her car. Yes, they had a little. Yes, they're walking talk because I'm going to go and <laughs> follow me to my Chevy Impala. <laughs> follow me to my K car. <laughs> <laughs> it's all I can afford on this lieutenant salary. They're never going to promote me. Might as well cue Kermit the Frog. It's our very special guest star, Mr. Gary Busey. Um, Wait, you're not going to do the other very special guest star? Because there's two of them in this episode. No, no, we're going get, to get to our <laughs> other special guest star in a second. We're walking uptown to get a taxi. And I had to go back to Nooners to take care of something. Take care of what? It has nothing to do with this. Why don't you let us be the judge of that, Mr. Vega? Gary Busey, uh, who is famous for the Buddy Holly story, Point Break, and Celebrity, celebrity Rehab, Rehab with, with Dr. Dr. Drew. Yeah. His greatest <laughs> performance of all time. Remember when he thought he was a counselor on Celebrity Rehab? <laughs> he was just there to, <laughs> to help the other people. <laughs> it's sad, but it's true. Uh, Gary Busey is an interesting actor, John. But first of all, I just have to ask, are, are, are you surprised he did not get an Emmy nomination for this performance? Oh, just simply out of the watching him fight looking into the camera every five seconds was enough to earn him something. Am I on? Am I on? Come on, GB, get it together. You just looked at the camera again. <laughs> GB. <laughs> oh, you know he calls himself that. Yeah, yeah. He's, uh, you know, a, a, a weird character in the sense that, you know, he had this, he had this, you know, very serious motorcycle accident in 1988. Mm-hmm. And he mm-hmm. had... Um, some severe, you know, brain, uh, traumatic brain injury, yeah. right, from that. And there were lingering effects to that. And it just has, you know, whereas I'm thinking back to Rose McGowan from a, a, a recent episode yep. mm-hmm. where she just sort of in popular culture was considered a little weird, but then we were really sympathetic because we sort of knew the backstory of her pain, right? And Gary Busey, although everybody knows that, like, he was on a motorcycle and wiped out without a helmet. We're kind of surprised that he seems off. Well, I I just don't think he had ever had the same kind of. I'm just gonna say it. What did you say he was famous for before that motorcycle? The Buddy accident? Holly story. <laughs> right. He, I think he, did he win a Golden Globe, John? Maybe. He he he. It was a really great performance. Yeah, and he was in Point yeah. Break. I mean, it's not. He didn't have. I'm not saying like Rose McGowan's career, like, but Rose McGowan had like a tremendous amount well, of. Well, not promise. the trajectory of their careers, but I'm just right. saying that as individuals. Yes. I don't know what to tell you, Kevin. He's Gary well, Busey. What? what so, 
what some people uh, forget and some people really remember is that he also had it in, in 1995. He also had a cocaine overdose. So uh-huh. like was it the motorcycle accident? Was it the overdose? Or was it a little bit of everything that kind of mixed together that kind of turned him into the cartoon character he is now? It's it, it, it could be both. Who knows? I do be. like that there was a doctor recently. Uh, it was like 19, uh, 2014. There was a doctor that said, you know, that that motorcycle accident maybe did more damage than anyone thought. You think? <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. Well, we do have what I will call a hey, it's that guy. Hey, it's that guy. Oh, please. Uh, well, hey, we do have repeat offender Bruce Altman, who is Brad Feldman. Yes. Titled to the contents of that box. Indeed, the obligation to pay for the box itself passed to my client on his wife's death. Or should I say to her estate, and my client being the sole beneficiary of that estate, has clear title. He's on a million episodes of this show. He was. He was actually on nine episodes in the Law & Order universe. Which is the same as a million. Right. <laughs> Including one of our very first... From season one, mm. uh, the episode that we did with John Cryer, John Cryer's dad was on it. Okay, but we, you know, let's really get to the person that we think we know. Who is the actor who played manager Art Cahill? That was Joe Piscopo. Joe Piscopo. <laughs> it's Joe Piscopo. <laughs> I managed this rapper. We had a business dispute. He starts making threats. One night I was alone. He came in with a bunch of gangsters. The next day was the talk of the office. Jackson came to me, said he knew where I could get a gun. My mother did that to me once. Once. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, now here's, and I want to get your take on this, John, because I think this is a guy who should have had a huge career, right? He was Eddie Murphy's number two for about four years on Saturday Night Live. He was in Johnny Dangerously. You just made the the reference there. And he just Mm -hmm. seems like a guy who failed to launch. I was looking over his IMDb earlier today, and I don't know if failure to launch is, is fair to say. It's He's been in a lot of things over the years. He's never really stopped working. It's just that he's never been big. Oh, he's been big. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> now, what is what do you mean by that, Rebecca? Well, I think, I really do think his weird lack of career trajectory is tied to the fact that when he was on Saturday Night Live, he was like a regular-sized person. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly be, he became like Dwayne the Rock Johnson. He became like this huge person. Yeah, he and did. he also wore that super weird toupee. I'm sorry, like he looks cartoonish in this episode. It's hard to cast somebody who doesn't come from a place. Like if you look at someone like The Rock, right? Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. know where he came from. So when you have him in parts where he's huge, like you know that there's, there's a reason for that, right? Like he used to be a wrestler and a football yeah. player and he plays guys in that type. But like Joe Piscopo was just like this dude from Saturday Night Live who like turned into a gigantic person with a toupee for no reason. Yeah. To me, that is a big part of the problem. I, I think there's something going on about this toupee. Can you elaborate? <laughs> it's like a whole other person in this scene with him. You know, they, they, they keep talking about like the has-been thing in this episode, and yeah. I'm like, the toupee looks like you got it from somebody else and put it on you. <laughs> That's how it looks to me. It, it was rather meta having him in this episode and, and have, having him be more interesting than Gary Busey, go figure. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, he's the guy who said, you know, instead of going to comedy clubs and building my career, I'm just going to have a lot of protein shakes (laughs) and do do crunches, and I'm not skipping leg day. (laughs) No, yeah, absolutely not. I I really enjoyed how every single one of his lines could have ended with, like, some sort of wink and a nod to a dirty joke, like, all right, boys, I got to go back to my my house. The old lady's waiting up for me, if you know what I mean. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to play that game, if you know what I mean. These guys are the next in sync. 
if you know what I mean. <laughs> 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 Rebecca, you know, we have a uh, a stinger that we play here for people before they were famous. Before they were famous. You were singing what you thought should be the one for this episode. <laughs> yes. After they were famous. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Not only is that the whole theme of the episode, we have the old man baseball player. Yeah. Okay. And then we have, you know, Gary Busey and Joe Piscopo. It's like, and what's the name of the episode? Used to be Formerly famous. famous, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a wink. I feel like this is one of those times where the writers and people had to submit an episode title just to get it in the lineup. They made a joke, and that joke accidentally stuck, and they were like, oh, it's too late. Like, that's the name of the episode now, because <laughs> someone forgot to send in the real name of it. You think, John, you think, like, they wrote it, and they said, we have to find the perfect Tommy Vega. Quick, get Busey on the phone. I'm pretty sure Busey just happened to stumble into it, and they're like, let's use it. (laughs) He was in New York. He just walked in, and he said, okay, before we shoot, though, we got to do this headshot. We got to hang up. We got to hang it up on the wall for scene one. But uh, I'm I'm, I'm convinced he just stumbled in and sat behind a trash can, and just like, hey, yeah, and then, yeah, let's use it. (laughs) Joe Piscopo. It was supposed to be Joe Piscopo in the starring role. Can we talk about how everybody's covered in sweat? Oh, my God. (laughs) <laughs> that scene where they went to go talk to that has-been baseball player on the field. Uh, in the ballpark, yeah. He's completely covered in sweat. So anyway, I sign her ball, and then she asked if I'd like to sign her rack. So you waved the feet. Yeah, the wife died almost nine years ago, so any action I get, I figure's icing on the cake. Orbach's shirt is <laughs> soaking right wet. from the from the collarbone down. <laughs> Is just wet, wet, wet Jesse all the way through. Jesse L. Martin, my favorite, favorite gorgeous man, is completely covered with sweat on his face. And I'm like, okay, so clearly it was like 110 degrees right. the day they had to shoot this scene. There wasn't some like backup location. Like he couldn't be signing baseball cards in like a comic book store or like the J- the Jacob Javits Center or something. It had to be there. It was so unbelievably distracting. Yeah, but that was the saddest way to to show you how far that baseball star has fallen. He's like, <laughs> he just set up a table in the middle of some some little league field, and he's signing baseballs and charging kids ten bucks a pop. He's on the t ball field. Yeah, he's not even like on the baseball field. He yeah. could go to American <laughs> Legion game. <laughs> now let's look at the second half of this episode. Art Cahill says he kept the gun because he'd gone from managing lounge acts to. One gangster rapper. Oh. He says the weapon was in his desk where anyone could get it. So he can't back up his alibi and we can't disprove it. Keeps him in play as a suspect. Yeah, unless what Kale's telling us about the gun is true. Have we run down everyone who had access to his office? Cleaning crews, office staff, clients. Which would include Tommy Vega. Focusing on the singer, Jack McCoy, and deep cover lesbian Serena Sutherland... <laughs> <laughs> Learned that Art paid Beth Ann $250,000 above her prenup. Uh, was it so Tommy could get custody of the couple's baby? Is Rick the club owner the actual father? Was Beth Ann pulling out of the deal? Why did Beth Ann call Tommy's son at work just before she was killed? Did the other brother go? Who the fuck knows, right? <laughs> just bring on Gary Busey. We knew from the first second of the episode, it's him. So in front of the grand jury, Tommy gets so worked up that he's able to put emotion into one whole line of dialogue. That's right. He admits Good killing his <laughs> he admits killing his wife who threatened to take the baby away. He says he's a has-been singer, but his daughter wouldn't care about that. 
at least not until she tries to buy a car. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I think we can all agree that this is not a great episode of Law & Order. Yeah, why'd you pick it? That's what I'm wondering. Well, I thought Gary Busey would be interesting to talk about. Um, (laughs) Well, the second half is certainly not good. I was going to say, the second half is kind of long and boring, and um, it just, I mean, this is, I think, the problem. When we start off with a divorce a divorce lawyer being subpoenaed by a grand jury right and that's going to be the scene we know we're in fucking trouble <laughs> we're never going to a murder trial in this episode my favorite part about this this part of the episode was the what if off between serena and and jack the, <laughs> what about putting her in front of a grand jury subpoena her to testify there we don't have enough for an indictment i don't want to take the chance the grand jury's term expires before we do what about convening a special grand jury one with a longer term Convening a special grand jury only fuels the media frenzy, makes it harder to uncover new witnesses. And what about using one that already exists? In my mind, that what if off went a little bit too far. Like, what if this? What if that? And then Jack's like, what if I told you that the previous version of you and I had a relationship? And she would turn around and say, what if I told you I was a lesbian? (laughs) (laughs) Fortunately, it didn't go that far. What if I told you all the scenes that have to do with juries in this episode are going to be grand juries, not actual trial juries, which is totally not interesting? What if that, Jack? <laughs> but, but what if they weren't? You just grinder him. Yeah, I mean, I think when we see, like, it's going to be all, I, I think that, again, like, when when you see the B celebrity, mm. you know, being interrogated in the first act, you know somehow they're involved in the crime, because that's the formula. I think when you go to the grand jury, at least twice... <laughs> You know that this is just going to end up being this part just going to be one of those legal cocktail party games about, well, what could happen? Let's find some really obscure part of the law and explore it for 10 minutes as if anybody knows what that means. Well, there's a whole different I mean, there's a difference between juries and grand, you know, court regular trials and grand jury you know proceedings mm-hmm. right yeah and we've learned this because we're experts in the law from watching law and order uh but <laughs> right. mainly the thing is that like in the grand jury like anything goes and yet in this show they don't actually exploit the fact that anything can go in the grand jury really until the end is a little bit of a thing but like they don't do any of those fun things you can do in the grand jury there's like no difference if that had been that or some pre-trial or proceeding it just seemed like a weird Maybe that was the room that was available to film in that day. Uh-huh. It's hard to know. We got to get everybody in on this Saturday <laughs> <laughs> and run through it pretty quick. It's really hot and the air condition's broken in part 35. So we got. <laughs> <laughs> so again, the grand jury room is just it, like anything goes. And we just kind of learn like kind of neat stuff. Like, uh, John, what'd you think about uh, Joe Piscopo's appearance? So Joe Piscopo on the stand tries to plead the fifth after taking immunity. What? (laughs) I think I'll take the fifth on that. The Fifth Amendment is not relevant here, Mr. Cahill, not with immunity. You can't be charged with any crimes reasonably related to my questions other than perjury. I was in my office that night with a woman, not my wife. I, his reasoning is pretty sound, though, because like, OK, well, I got immunity from you guys. But when my wife finds out what I was doing that night, I'm dead. OK, well, all right, <laughs> makes sense. Yeah. I think somebody's got to slip a rerun of this episode over to Michael Cohen. <laughs> <laughs> so he understands what he's in for. So, Rebecca, what do you think about uh, Tommy Vega's two adult sons? Oh, you mean uh, Donald Jr. and Eric? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like, you legit could not be more Donald Jr. and Eric than these two kids. 
And I also have because you had the one in the suit. Yes. The hot, and then the other one who's just like a doofus who couldn't tie his own shoes. Yeah. <laughs> you think your father needs a lawyer? If you're asking questions like this, what do you think the press is going to do to him? It, we're just trying to find out what happened. And we want to help. We're just trying to do what's right by our dad. They were like this SNL caricatures of Don Jr. and Eric. But I have a very important question to ask both of you. And right. I don't know if either okay. one of you can solve this mystery for me. Yeah. The very beginning of the episode, we hear that Tommy Vega's name is not Tommy Vega. That's a stage name. So why are his kids Mr. Vega? <laughs> why is their oh. last name Vega when that's a fake made up name? Oh, look at the time. I got to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Meatloaf's kid's last name is Loaf. <laughs> I think it happens. Sting's kid doesn't have a last name. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Prince's kid's last name is that stupid, stupid symbol thing that he had for a few years there. Yeah, yeah. Elton John's sons are, I don't know, not, not Reginald Dwight. Even like Ringo Starr's like, kid's last name that's is right. not Star. Yeah, it's Starkey, right. right. Yeah. that's his actual name. That's his actual name. <laughs> God damn it, Tommy Vega. <laughs> Law and Order has got to start paying attention. Yeah, it's these little details that really kill it. Well, I, you know, it's like when the episodes are bad like this, it's the only thing you can pay attention to, yeah. right? I have to appreciate Gary Busey's character, for, or Tommy B- Vega, for being a good dad. Like, he is ride or die for his boys. Like, yeah. <laughs> you mean my boys are going to go to the jail? Why are you going after them? Uh, because they you called them? Oh, well, then I did it. Yeah. Really? <laughs> Well, this is, again, one of those great times where McCoy does the let's get everybody in one room trick and see what happens. That always works. Well, it it doesn't always work, but it works here. Have you ever seen it not work? Are you going to give me an example of when it didn't work on this show? No, it worked. I mean, if it's it's happening in the last 10 minutes, it's obviously working. Why are you going after my kids? You leave us no alternative, Mr. Vega. Without someone telling this grand jury what really happened that night, they won't have any choice but to indict both your sons. What if I testify? Anything you said could be used against you. If I don't, he arrests my kids. You're just setting you up, Pop. I do this, you leave my kids alone. I won't make any promises until I've heard what you have to say. Dad, don't. Relax, Jason. It's going to be okay. Grand jury is just another audience. Grand jury is just another audience. And again, the grand jury proceeding is not formal. Jack McCoy could literally in the grand jury say to him when he's on the stand, didn't you just say the grand jury is just another audience? <laughs> Tell these grand jurors what, what you meant. What the hell, Gary Busey? Why would you say that in front of the prosecutor? Well, if you remember, at certain points, he is on heavy narcotics trying to get over his oh. wife's death. Oh. Yes. And so is his character. <laughs> it, uh, oh, right. I thought that's what boom, we meant. Boom, right? boom, boom, boom. <laughs> well, it all comes up to this great... Because we see Gary Busey's character in the beginning, and then... As Ben Affleck said in um, uh, Shakespeare in Love, he disappears for the length of a Bible. And we don't see him again <laughs> until the end. Did you just quote Ben Affleck from Shakespeare in Love? I did. I love that line. He disappears <laughs> for the length of a Bible. <laughs> and we're just waiting for him to come back. And then we have this really, gr- I think, a pretty good scene at the end in the grand jury room where Tommy Vega gives his emotional explanation for his love of his daughter and why he, oops, killed his wife. She could prove you weren't the biological father. Without that, you had no hope of keeping Sarah. I would have paid anything! What happened that night, Mr. Vega? I had fame. I had a career. I was somebody. And then I threw it all away. As a has-been. And then this baby comes along. 
And she didn't care if I was a has-been. She didn't care if I lost it all. She was my second chance. And guys like me don't get second chances. John, what'd you think of at least this bit of Gary Busey's performance? Did he uh, did he bring it home or not? He brought it so home, I jumped over my couch to make sure he wasn't coming for me. Yes, <laughs> where he jumps off the, <laughs> this, 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 just, just a couple of steps off the stand. I'm cool. <laughs> hey, what do you say? She's She was my second chance. I was just thinking like, no, it's okay. You're also going to be on Celebrity Rehab with Dr. That's Drew. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's really your second chance though, yeah. right? Yeah, you and Tani Katane will be yeah. hanging out. In China. China. The wrestler. <laughs> China. Uh, may she rest in peace. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, the redheaded guy from the Partridge family. Donnie Banaducci? <laughs> Danny Banaducci. Was Danny Banaducci on Celebrity Of course he was. Oh. Did yes, you not was. watch the show with me? I, I can't remember everybody. <laughs> All right, let's take a look at the real life story that inspired this episode. No. It's time for Ripped from the Headlines. Oh, can't wait. You think you know who did it. You think you know who did it. But you don't know who did it. You don't know who did it. Rip from the headlines. This episode is inspired by the story of Robert Blake and the murder of his wife, Bonnie Lee Bakley. The actor, known for In Cold Blood and Beretta, married Bakley in 2000. It was his second marriage, her tenth. Bonnie Lee Bakley had made a career as a scam artist who pursued celebrities. A failed model and actress, Bakley made money selling nude photos of herself through the mail. In 1990, she moved to Memphis to cozy up to rock pioneer Jerry Lee Lewis. She named her new daughter Jerry Lee and claimed the musician was the father. Bakley targeted several other celebrities, including Dean Martin, Frankie Valli and Gary Busey himself. (gasps) What? Really? (laughs) She began dating Robert Blake the same time she was dating Marlon Brando's son, Christian. In 2001, Bakley was shot in a car parked near an Italian restaurant at which the couple had eaten. Blake said he wasn't in the car, having instead returned to the restaurant to retrieve a gun he left there. Prosecutors weren't buying that, though. They said Blake hired a stuntman he knew to kill his wife. But in 2005, a jury acquitted him. Bakley's relatives later won a wrongful conviction suit against Blake for $30 million. So, uh, Gary Busey... Actually had a connection to the rip from the headline story here. But does he know that? Does he know? (laughs) He's like, this sounds familiar. (laughs) Joe, Joe Piscopo, do you remember this? (laughs) That is, I mean, I remember the Robert Blake thing. Yeah. I don't remember all of those details about what a grifter she was. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that makes him less guilty. I'm just saying that maybe I understand a little bit more what was going on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you just Chris Rock this? No. <laughs> <laughs> sure would shake the crap out of her. <laughs> well, it is a common tactic to smear the victim, right, in, in court when you're um, you know, the defense attorney. Although her past doesn't really figure into her death, she really did lead kind of a sketchy life. I could totally see how this would play out more as a murder on the Orient Express kind of story. Ah, yeah, yeah. All the all the past lovers getting together and making this happen. I could see this work that way. I, I, they really did work hard in this episode to make sure we didn't like her. And I think that that what was probably more effective way back in 2001 than it is today, because now now we are more apt to 
whatever the person did, they don't deserve to die. Right, right. But, th- but this, it's also problematic because we never see her in the episode. She's not a person. She's just a dead person. Yeah. And I- We did see her chalk outline. <laughs> that's true. But that's that's the one thing that like Law & Order- you know, sometimes it does it better than others where, you know, you have more connection with the victim because either they have a kid and you meet the kid and you feel we don't even meet the freaking baby in this episode. We just hear about the baby. <laughs> the baby. There was so, a baby. Yeah. Sarah, Sarah, the baby. Like we it's just it's like a passing reference. So all of the references to the victim are just they're just out. So mm-hmm. they either did have victim scenes and then maybe they didn't want to pay that actress, so then she was cut out of the episode. But it's very hard to feel bad or hate somebody that you've never even met. Right, right. Um, so Blake uh, put out Christian Brando as an alternative suspect uh. in his wife's death. Now, does anyone remember what Christian Brando had been in trouble for previously? You mean besides being Marlo Brando's son? Yeah, besides that. No. He was convicted of manslaughter for shooting his sister's boyfriend That's right. in Marlon Brando's what? home on Mulholland. That's right. And uh, She liked some shitty celebrities. Yeah. She was picking the wrong people. <laughs> yeah. Well, Bakley said that she told Brando and Blake at the same time they were both the father to her daughter. Uh, and she recorded a call with Brando in which he confronted her about who the father was. And he was heard saying that she was lucky that someone didn't put a bullet in her head. So reasonable doubt? I, I buy mean, it. <laughs> Robert Blake, literally his excuse, the fact that he didn't shoot her was I was going back to the restaurant for my gun. That was always the detail that yeah. struck me. It's like, no, go back for your wallet. Don't go back for yeah. your gun. Yeah. For fuck's sakes, I Robert was, Blake. I couldn't have been me. I left my gun at the restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no, it fell out of my pocket like it does. Yeah, all the time. <laughs> Look, note to Robert Blake, while you're on trial for murder, don't shit talk the victim who was also your wife. Yeah, it's not good. Yeah. Now, after the acquittal, the DA was so upset that he called members of the jury incredibly stupid. <laughs> Subtle. I like it. These jurors are incredibly stupid. I mean, it's a thing that I think we all think sometimes. Not like the juror in this episode that we see very briefly in one of those grand jury scenes with the longest, most meme-worthy eye roll I've ever seen on an episode of Law and Order. That's why I think there were cut scenes in this episode, because they tried to fill time literally with a juror going, and I know it's audio, so act it out, Kevin, for me. Ready? Explain what I'm doing right now. Oh, you're rolling your whole head. That happens in this episode. It does, but not in real life, which is what we're talking about. Focus, Rebecca. Focus. Sorry. We're ripped from the headlines. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so Robert Blake, it has been 17 years. How long until he can attempt to come back? (laughs) Let's see, like him and Louis C.K., like... Mm. Too soon? Still too soon? <laughs> you know what? M- uh, Mel Gibson's got his comeback on a way, so why not? What's <laughs> him and OJ? This could be a buddy movie. Oh, yeah. Shawshank Redemption redo. <laughs> <laughs> this time they uh, they don't tunnel out. They tunnel back in. <laughs> Well, that is going to do it for us. We want to thank our guest, John Davenport. John, where can our listeners follow you online? Uh, you can find me most times on the Hollywood Outsider podcast. Uh, if you want to get in touch with me, I'm I'm most active on Instagram. I, and that address is rjohn.draws, where you can see me do some artwork, some flying race drones. You'll see a lot of my 11-month-old pop puppy there, and um, sometimes me. 
Rebecca, how can our listeners follow you? Well, you can follow me on my super boring ass Instagram <laughs> at Reb Lavoie. And I'm also on Twitter at Reb Lavoie. And you can also find me on, at Crime Writers On. And you can track me on Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn. You can also tweet to us at Law and Order Pod or follow us on Instagram at These Are Their Stories Podcast. Our newsreader was Cy Freider. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valleys. Line editing by Henry Lavoie. Content assistance from Travis Roy. Lily Flynn handles our promotions. To get ad-free episodes of These Are Their Stories a week early, sign up for Stitcher Premium. Get your first month free at stitcherpremium.com slash crime. All clips in this podcast are used in compliance with the U.S. Copyrights Act fair use exemption for criticism and commentary. Special thanks to the elite squad of the Law & Order Wiki community for preserving the evidence. If you want to know what episodes we're talking about in our upcoming shows, go to lawandorderpodcast.com. Sign up for our newsletter for a chance to be our next Law & Order Marathon winner. These Are the Stories was recorded in the Yoga Loft above the Bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio and is a production of Partners in Crime Media. Partners in Crime Media.